It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring Ask Michael Anything. Yeah, baby. Woohoo! Very exciting. And thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. I hope the gentleman who complained about the audience being too loud found it a little easier to deal with. I moved it about a foot this week. I get the funniest emails and, and notes and stuff. Anyway, uh, welcome to the big show. Let me get the chat room open so I can say hello to you guys. There you are. Hello, Dan Weber, Sherry Marcus Milano, Mojo Bone, Jay Williams, uh, Anna. Hello, Anna. Gloria Covington, uh, Jan Wheelage, Martin Frog, Albert, Alan Gilbert, Dean Turner, The Branch. Anyway. Uh, I want to let you guys know, <laughs> I was just telling, oh, by the way, um, Bria is out of town this week, and so Ariana from our staff, who's a, a recent addition to the staff, and we adore her, and she's wonderful, is filling in for Bria, so give her a really hard time, <laughs> make her sweat. <laughs> uh, anyway, she's sitting across the desk from me, uh, producing this week's episode of Taxi TV. So... I woke up Friday, I believe it was Friday, with the worst pain in my neck that I have ever, second worst, I, I, 30 years ago when I moved to Los Angeles, I had one that was so bad I actually broke down and, and got acupuncture. Um, but this thing just killing me all weekend long. So last night, Deb and I went to a dinner party with, I don't know, four or five different couples, and one of our friends was there is a psychologist, um, but he walked up to me and he said, I can see that you're in pain and you're you know, like turning your whole body to talk to people. You know, I've got like a sixth sense for finding where the knots are. And I said, dude, go for it. So he sat me down in a chair. He put so much pressure on my neck that I thought he was either gonna bust, uh, burst my carotid artery. It felt like somebody shot me in the neck with a 357 Magnum. And I woke up today and I had a big bruise on the side of my neck. I think it feels like I've got a tumor growing over there. It's so messed up. Anyway, the, the pain was back by about 30%. So I went and dug out some old muscle relaxers called Flexeril. And I bit one in half because I didn't want to take a whole one because they do kind of make you sleepy. I forgot that they blur your vision. So um, my vision's pretty blurry today. So it should make the show very exciting considering... I'm reading all that stuff. Um, so today we're asking Michael, that's me, anything. Uh, and we got, I've got to say, Ariana printed out these questions about a half hour ago and gave them to me. And I gave him a quick run through. By far, the best set of questions I think I've ever gotten in 10 years of doing this show as far as the quality of things you guys are asking about. So good work on that, folks. Uh, and I want to let you know before we get rolling here that Thursday, July 11th, which is a month from... When is the 11th this month? Um, tomorrow. Anyway, it's a month, technically a month from this coming Thursday, um, or four weeks from this Thursday. We're doing uh, our next Taxi Live Artist Showcase. We did one a year ago at Kulak's Woodshed, which is this awesomely, wonderfully funky little venue in North Hollywood. Um, it's got kind of that, that same vibe that like when you were in high school and you went over to your best friend's house and went down the basement and drank his dad's beer and played pool and ping pong and watched movies, whatever, in, in your best friend's parents' basement. This place has a feel like that. 
dating back to like 1970 something. So it's pretty awesome. They broadcast stuff live and have incredibly good video production for a funky little venue that's, you know, kind of vibey. Uh, the video production is beautiful. And so we're doing an event where we will have, I want to say five acts, taxi acts live. Um, so we want to invite, if you're local, please come down. The show will be Thursday, July 11th at Kulak's Woodshed, North Hollywood. Uh, the show starts at 7 p.m. The venue only holds like 40 or 50 people. Um, so get there early. Um, and also we've got a listing running that deadlines. Let me see. Uh, ooh, the listing deadlines on Thursday, June 13th, which would be this week. Uh, and the listing is asking for artists or bands, male or female vocals, needed for the, the annual um, live artist showcase. Actually, hope to do it more often than just annually. Um, and we're going to broadcast it live as a special episode of Taxi TV. Last time we did this, it was a total experiment, and it, it turned out to be better than we could have hoped for. And I'm sure this time it will be even better. So write that in your book or mark it on your phone's calendar. Thursday, July 11th, broadcasting live from Los Angeles, 7 p.m. Pacific time. And if you are local, come on down. Um, it was a lot of fun. So there you go. That's that. Um, so today I'm just going to answer questions. Wow, look at you guys. A lot of activity there. Yeah, Kulak's Woodshed, best place ever. It really is. I love that venue. Um, yeah, and I think what they're doing, I think that screener, you know, honestly, I don't know. I think last time around, though, I think the screeners um, eliminated stuff and left like a, you know, a 30% of the stuff that seemed right for the showcase. And then the actual staff, taxis, actual staff versus the screeners picked the acts finally um, that were going to play at the showcase. So I don't know if that's the methodology they're using this time or not, but I know last time we had awesome talent and I'm sure we will this time as well. So there you go. So let's jump right into the questions. Oh, you know what? Even though Bree is not here, um, she's across the pond, as they say. If she were here, she would be kicking me under the table right now and telling me to hold up the subscribe sign. And so training Ariana. So but I don't know if her legs are long enough to reach me under the table or not. I'm trying to get her to laugh. <laughs> and don't forget to give us a thumbs up. This one's important, the little alert bell thing, which is in your upper right-hand corner of your uh, YouTube screen. Click that sucker. And then remember, always share with your grandmother because she's a sweet little old lady and she would really like this show. So there you go. Um, okay, jumping right in. I am taking these pretty much in the order they came in. Um, first question is from Gary Wilson. And Gary's question is, my question for today's show is this. Had a little preamble there. Why can't songwriters form a union that would allow them advances on royalties like producers get? <clears throat> Excuse me. Streaming has all but killed the songwriters industry. Unless you're also the artist and you can go out on the road, it's virtually impossible to make any money. I just read where one writer who had a huge hit for Justin Bieber had 38 million streams on Pandora that paid him $1,700 and 34 million streams on YouTube that paid $1,200. 
He said if he had to depend on songwriting income, he would have to move back home with his parents. Not cool. Uh, so what do you see is the best way currently for a writer who's not an artist to earn a living. One of my own songs received 26,000 streams in February on Spotify, and that only generated $100.14. We've touched on this on many shows before with people who are far more expert than I am on the technical details of how things get paid for, and frankly, um, you know, I, I try to stay up on things. It's confusing because you get paid for streams and you get paid differently if it's, uh, you know, uh, a stream that's randomized. Um, and, you know, there's a YouTube stream where there's video with it and then there's Spotify streams, which is just music. They all have a different way of paying you. And frankly, it's really friggin' hard to understand. You know what? It's not hard to understand. It's hard to remember it all. But there is no doubt that nowadays it's not like the good old days where a songwriter got signed by a publisher like Sony ATV, for instance, or Warner Chapel. And back in the really old days, um, they would get like a hundred thousand dollar a year advance, and they would have to turn in twelve songs that were above the quality line uh, as determined by the publisher. Uh, and then the publisher had people on the pitching side. Uh, they had. Uh, you know, a million contacts, mostly with A&R people, artists and producers, and they would go out and pitch this stuff to people who they thought would like this particular song. So it wasn't a matter of just taking a song out and going, wow, everybody's got to hear this awesome song. They would actually target where they pitched it. Um, and the, the publishing company was making a bet with that $100,000 advance that, uh, that they could get your work cut and that you would earn royalties and that they would, the royalties would be greater than what they advanced you and everybody would be happy. Um, the industry's changed so much now. Uh, many songs are written by multiple people. Sometimes I just heard a case the other day where there were 14 writers, I believe, on something. Um, typically it's more like four or five or six writers. Um, that still is befuddling to me. I don't get it, but I know that it's real and that's the way things work now. So not only do you get paid far less when stuff is streaming than you did from, um, uh, what do they call it when, uh, mechanical royalties. Um, if you had a song that, was, let's say you're a songwriter and had two or three songs because you were friends with the act or they just loved your material, um, you got nine point some odd cents, close to 10 cents um, per song per unit sold. So if you had a song on Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, and it sold 35 million copies or whatever it sold, uh, and you made a dime for every one of those. So that would be, what, $3.5 million in mechanicals? Is that right? I think that's right, right? Hold on, I've got a calculator. <laughs> Check this out, old school. I do have my phone sitting right next to me. Am I using it? No, I'm using the calculator. Oh my goodness, there's not enough light. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay, $3.5 million. Not as bad at math as I thought it was. So um, that was just for mechanical royalties. And then let's say that the song got released to radio and that became a hit and you got spins all over the world. Chances are that the uh, um, performance royalties would be even greater. So you could make some really serious cash as a songwriter. Uh, it's much harder today. Um, and 
as far as a union goes, which is really the root of this question, I think unions are started for really good reasons. Um, I think that over time unions, I'm thinking labor unions now, um, have gotten so much control uh, that they jacked up the, the cost per hour of what employees cost and, and really um, turned business away from wanting to work with unions. Uh, and, and this is not my personal feeling about unions. I'm not trying to make this a political statement. It's just they got hard to deal with and, and there were all these tough negotiations and stuff but songwriters really don't have that option because you know what you could take a million songwriters out there and everybody goes yeah i'm gonna be in a union um guess what the million and first songwriter is gonna go screw that i don't want to be in a union um and, and eventually other people are going to jump on that train and the union is going to be ineffective. In order for a union to work, everybody's got to be on board. And as we've seen throughout the ages in the music industry, there is always somebody standing behind you that will do the work cheaper. Just that simple. So I don't have a solution. If I had a solution, um, I'd be extremely wealthy. Uh, and maybe I'd be giving you guys rides in my private jet every Monday instead of doing this webcast. So I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, but that's my honest answer. I don't think a union is going to work. Look, the producers getting advances. Um, I'm not so sure that that's the case anymore all the time either. So really, it's a matter of you, if you want to make money in the industry, you've just got to work super hard, be better than everybody else, and get so much work for yourself and be on so many great records. There are some people, like our office is in Calabasas, California. It's kind of like the outskirts of LA, Beverly Hills. Um, and Justin Bieber gets his gas at the same gas station that we all do. And we see a lot of hit songwriters riding around in G-wagons and what have you. So somehow they are making the money. Somebody out there is making the money, okay? So what you need to do, uh, rather than going down the road of trying to form a union that won't take off, um, people won't want to pay their union dues. That's how unions live, is by union dues. Can you imagine songwriters wanting to, you know, forking over hundreds of dollars a year to be in a union when they're not making any money as a result of being in the union? I doubt it. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. I wish I had a better answer. Okay, next question is from Andre, A-N-D-R-E-E, -E, Bell Isle. Um, Hi, Michael. I'm a new taxi member since two weeks. I present an instrumental cue that is chosen by a company with an exclusive deal and it turns out that this queue has no longer version, has a longer version with lyrics. Uh, I'm guessing that English is not her first language, so I'm going to try and do a little interpretation. Hopefully I don't mess up your question, Andre. Um, can I use the song as an artist performer example on an album, uh, a book CD, or a TV show paying them their fee? The answer is yeah, you can. If you've already signed an exclusive deal um, and you use it, they would be more than happy to have you do the work for them. For you to get the song used in other venues, uh, be it a book, a CD, getting cut by other artists, they're still going to make their money. So the answer is, sure, they'd be happy to have you do that for them. Um, 
In other words, do I lose this right? No, you don't lose the right. Um, and one last question for you. If we are a band with two independent albums, the second was not yet launched, I'm guessing that means released, but already recorded, how do you join A&R to have it signed by a record company? The band has a community and the music is excellent, but we do not know how to find a record deal effectively. Thank you. Well, Andre, you're staring the answer in the face. The answer is taxi. You know, we do run listings for labels looking for acts. So there you go. Um, it's the best way to get a record deal, honestly, even better than taxi, has always been by creating so much traction for yourself that labels can no longer ignore you. They love to find people who have done the homework, done the hard work, and have started the fire on their own, and then the label just comes in and pours a little gasoline on the fire and takes it to a wider audience and creates more of a flame. Um, that takes a lot of work. That's a 12 to 18 hour a day, seven day a week, multi-year job. It can be done. Not very many people have the stamina, uh, maybe the business acumen. Um, a lot of people give up and put their tail between their legs and, and go home. It, it's not as easy as just starting a YouTube channel and uh, a Facebook page and a, you know, and a Snapchat and an Instagram and going on Twitter and come on down to my shows, everybody. Uh, in theory, it's a level playing field out there but the playing field becomes less level according to your work ethic and are you willing to you know work a 12-hour day and then spend four hours reading everything you can every day online to learn how to do this how did other people do it is the question because that's what you want to know is anthony robbins the self-help guru often says Somebody somewhere has already done what you want to do. All you have to do is look and see how they did it and do the same thing. So there you go. Um, short of that, use taxi. If you're really smart, you'll do both. Uh, question number three comes from Woody Bradfield. Hey, Michael, a few questions for you. Uh, in commercial music as a producer, I always told clients that if I can't hum the melody or hook after listening to a song, then it's not a good song. Should I apply that reasoning to cues? That's a great question. I love that question, Woody. There, and for the guy who complained about the clapping being too loud, I'm looking at about 18 inches there, so let me know if it needs to be 24. Um, Okay, the question again in short uh, is, as a commercial music producer, I always told clients, and I'm not sure if he means commercial as in commercially appealing or commercial music for commercials. Um, if you were doing jingles, for instance, if it, it's that context that Woody is referring to, um, yes, you want to be extremely catchy because you want people to remember it. As a matter of fact, at the aforementioned dinner party last night, we spent a good half hour at the table with about 10 or 12 of us doing you love it, it love it, and plop, plop, fizz, fizz. We were recounting all of our fav favorite jingles from our, our youth. So yeah, you want them to be really sticky, really memorable. Now, should that apply to instrumental cues? My opinion is no, it should not. And you know why? Because first of all, music supervisors, in most cases, nothing is ever 100% in this industry, but in most cases, um, Music supervisors aren't looking for your cue or editors working on a reality show. Video editors 
putting music into a reality show. In both of those cases, they are not looking for a piece of music that is going to grab attention. Why is that? Because if your music is grabbing attention, then the viewer is not paying attention to the dialogue and the plot and the actors. So the music is really there to just enhance the emotion. Um, it's not there to get attention. In most cases, like I said, nothing is ever 100%, but that's pretty darn close. So the answer is no, you don't want your cues to be super catchy. Uh, as a matter of fact, when our listings go through the final edit before they go out the door here, a lot of times we will actually remove the word catchy if it's in there. Not 100% of the time, but we try. Um, now, if you were doing a song for a movie, um, first and foremost, it's got to uh, underscore, and I don't mean underscore as in like a score, I mean, it's got to bolster the emotion. It has to contribute to the emotion. If you watch the scene without the music, what would it be? And then if you watch the scene with the music, is the emotion more pronounced, more effective? Does it hit the viewer more in the heart or in the head? So that's number one. But in some cases, you might want it to be catchy. Uh, here's an example. Footloose, the song from the movie Footloose. Uh, I think Kenny Loggins did it. That's an anthem for that movie. And you can't, and I'm not going to sing this, but you can't sing Footloose and not think of that movie. So there are cases where you want the song to be incredibly catchy, uh, especially in the days where music routinely went from a movie to a soundtrack album, um, and then a few of the songs made it to radio. So in those cases, yes, but as far as instrumental cues go, not so much. Um, okay, number two question from Woody Bradfield. What is the logic behind, oh, this is a great one too. Man, you guys were on your game. Uh, what's the logic behind vintage songs that must be recorded between X year and Y year? As a producer, I could easily pull out the vintage 2-inch Atari multi-track and analog gear and recreate that style to a T. Is it a copyright issue? You know what it is? It's authenticity and marketing. Um, the gentleman who owns by far the most prolific publishing company uh, for vintage music in the film and TV world is a good friend, really good friend of mine. Uh, we've spent countless hours talking about this uh, over dinner and phone calls, what have you, over like a 15 year period. So I'm pretty well informed about this. And I've asked this question of him. Why is it that you need it to have been recorded in 1975? Why? Somebody could go buy an old MCI 2-inch 24-track machine, an old console from back then, use older microphones. Uh, the reason is that their clients come to them looking for vintage music and they like it better when they find out that something was recorded back in the day. So there's cachet in being able to say, this was actually recorded in 1975. Even better if you've got an entire catalog of material that was all recorded back in those time periods. Um, there are a lot of people that can sit down and do a really good job of imitating that time period, a given time period. Um, but you know what? About three years ago, I had a 
that gentleman who owns that library, his name is Jeff, um, he's going to be back at the rally and we're do, doing something about vintage music, most likely in the grand ballroom from the main stage this year. Um, but last time I had him on the stage, he and I played music. We, I, I pulled out some incredibly good recreations from taxi members and played the stuff and asked the audience, was this authentically old and vintage or was it made to sound vintage? And in most cases, it was really darn close to being able to fool the audience, if not actually fooling the audience. But he could just tell in, a, in an instant because this is what he does for a living. And you know what? When we played his actual vintage music against the recreations, not that it was the same song, but it was so patently obvious to everybody in that ballroom that, oh, man, I can hear the difference. And you can. Um, so even though you have all that same old gear, um, you know what, your playing style, your writing style, um, there's so many things uh, that are going to change. Just melodies change over time. Um, so melodies that sound dated would have been what you would hear in that older music, but now, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, um, your brain is been rewired to write a different kind of melodies with different intervals and different phrasing and all that stuff comes into play so even though you're recording it on vintage gear it still may not sound vintage so in the end it comes down to authenticity and marketing that library and others that are jumping on this bandwagon want to be able to say this is authentic to that date so there you go and the third question from Woody Bradfield is what specifics would your folks like to see in the ID3 notes tag? The song key, BPM, how much is too much? And Woody finishes off with a thanks, brother. You're welcome, Woody. Um, you know, metadata, tagging stuff, um, Everybody's got a different answer for this. Everybody. And we're going to talk about this uh, more fully at the Road Rally. We've talked about it in previous years, but it can't re be repeated enough. First and foremost, got to have your name. Got to have the title. Got to have your contact information. So first name, last name, song or instrumental title, um, your phone number, and your email address. You have to have those things. Um, BPM, sure, it couldn't hurt. Um, there are a million other things, but it's kind of a, a library by library preference. And frankly, uh, when we send the stuff to them, we accompany every shipment, in quotes, of music to these companies with, um, with all your contact information because ultimately we want them to be able to get a hold of you so that they can sign you to a deal and you can make some money with your music. There are times that um, people lose that information. I don't know how, but they do. And they reach out to us because we've got the taxi logo and everything. We have relationships with them. And there have been plenty of times where they reach out to us and say, you know, I can't find John Doe's phone number. Can you connect me with them, him? So just the basics, first name, last name, title, phone number, 
email address. That should be on everything. Everything else is kind of icing on the cake and is largely dictated by the library. But I think some libraries would rather have you not put all that stuff in. So they certainly don't want you to add a bunch of keywords and do what's called keyword stuffing, where you're adding every genre of music and every descriptor possible, hoping that you've covered so many that when people search the library, uh, they're going to come up with yours no matter what they search. That's just going to piss people off, so it's not a good tactic. Having you know some well-chosen descriptors in there, absolutely wonderful. But the way they're formatted, the fields they're put in, certain um, little peculiarities that are endemic to different companies, they may not want you to do the work in advance because then it just makes more work for them to undo it when they get their hands on it. But they will always want you to submit with first name, last name, title, phone number, and email address. So there you go. Hope that covers that for you, Woody. Moving on, and our next contestant is Rachel Shiradonsky. Hi, and thank you for the opportunity to ask questions. Why, you're quite welcome, Rachel. Um, that is so helpful. Yeah, well, let's see if you feel that way by the end of the show. My first question is, is it necessary to register, ooh, this is kind of a related uh, thing. Is it necessary to register a new copyright at the time of release? Uh, oh no, it's not related, sorry. I'm gonna start this over. My first question is, is it necessary to register a new copyright at the time of release for a single that has been remixed and remastered? I have to think about this to understand it a little bit. Register a new copyright, no. Um, the copyright, um, just because you're changing the mix and, the, and remastering it, I don't believe that the copyright for the recording um, would require you to change that based on that. I could be wrong. I am not a world-class copyright expert, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I think you're fine. If you were to substantially change the song, the composition copyright, um, you may have to re-register it. But um, as far as the recording goes, for remixed and remastered, I don't believe that's the case. Um, my second question is, can you explain what digital performance royalties are and how they differ from regular performance royalties? No. <laughs> I, I can understand it when one of the geniuses that we've had on the show has explained it to me, but the number of things that you have to be aware of uh, in that world, it, it's not simple. But if you go back and look at the Taxi TV episode with Michael Ames, whose last name is spelled E-A-M-E-S, um, he and Bobby Borg have been on the show, I believe, three times. And I believe that the first two times they did Taxi TV, probably around 2015 or 2016, and then again in 2017, um, probably 2018, um, Michael Ames covered this topic so incredibly well uh, that I, I just would embarrass myself by trying to even approach the level of understanding and, and articulateness, if that's a word, um, that he can explain this with. So go check that out. Um, I think uh, we also covered it with Aaron. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember her last name. I'm drawing a blank. Um, it's the flexoril. It just kicked in. I'm so high. I'm kidding. I'm really not, but my vision is a little blurry. Um, uh, Aaron, do you remember Aaron's last name? Um, 
gosh, she would kill me if she, I hope she's not watching this episode. <laughs> anyway, um, she explained it as well, but it's really complex. Jacobson, Jacobson yes, Aaron Jacobson. Um, so any of those episodes and you're gonna get a far better explanation than you will from me today. Um, the third question is, what is the proper way for an artist to get paid for their original music if it's covered by another artist or band in a live setting? Uh, for example, I've performed cover songs before and did not know anything about a public performance license. Okay, I'm not an expert on live stuff, but I think I understand copyright law and um, what PROs do well enough to answer this effectively for you. You want to make sure that the venue that you're playing is licensed by the PROs, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. They pay an annual fee. I want to say it's about, sorry, that was today's sponsor is Rockstar. Um, the, the venue actually pays an annual fee of like 400, 500 bucks. And that allows them to play music in their lobby, music over their telephone system, uh, it should also cover live performance. However, the venue would have to alert the PRO that you played a cover song in their venue. So there's got to be something that's equivalent to a cue sheet that the venue uh, would fill out and submit to the PRO in order to make sure that the writer was covered because they already have a relationship with the PRO. The venue has a relationship with the PRO vis-a-vis -vis their license agreement. Now. Is somebody at a small club or even like a coffee house, you know, you're going to walk up after you do your gig and say, I just covered a, an Adele song. Let's assume that she wrote the song um, and I want to make sure that she gets paid her 45 cents for me covering her song at your little coffee shop. Um, so here, I've even gone to the trouble of filling out that form and here you go. Can you send it off to the PRO? I'm just guessing here, and I don't want to indict every coffee shop or every bar owner in America, but I think the next sound that you're going to hear when you walk out of there is that. Just saying. Um, maybe if you've got a really responsible, really nice owner of the venue um, and they want to see musicians get paid for their work, they won't crumble it up. But that's the answer to your question. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that one. Okay, now it's time to enjoy some of this beverage. Mm -mm, that sure is good. <laughs> Rockstar. This one is watermelon. I gotta say, this is my favorite from last year's road rally. By the way, don't forget the Taxi Road Rally, the most excellent conference for songwriters, artists, and composers is coming up on November 7th through the 11th in Los Angeles every single taxi member gets a free ticket for him or herself and for a guest of their choosing. It's mind-blowingly good. We're just about the point where we're going to open registration and we will start updating you guys as we add panels and speakers and that sort of stuff. Mark it in your, in your calendar. You really want to come. And if you're the kind of person that loves to procrastinate, um, don't put it off because you're only hurting yourself. Seriously, ask any taxi member who has been to any of the other 22 road rallies and they will tell you that nothing has ever moved their career forward faster than going to the road rally. 
Uh, some people say that it's the best part of a taxi membership. I've got to believe that they're right. Uh, we have people that have flown in from you know Brazil, Sweden, Japan, Hong Kong, um, just all over the world, Australia, New Zealand. People get on planes for 15 to 17 hours to come to this event and they come up at the end of the weekend and look me in the eye and say, this was worth every penny that I spent and the amount of time and the jet lag to get here. This weekend was mind blowing. They're not lying to me. I'm not lying to you. Come to the road rally or you're only hurting yourself. Um, moving on here. Roger Franklin Blakely asks, I have three recent forwards, but the music publishers remain unknown to me. As a result, my initial excitement has turned into frustration as I have no way to follow up with them uh, for an update or a final decision. Uh, how long does the waiting game typically last and have you considered changing your no contact policy? Um, sadly, I, will, I don't think I will ever be able to change the no contact policy. The reason being, let's say that we forward 25 pieces of music to a music library that's a well-known music library that makes money for musicians and is a you know a top-level library many of those libraries are actually quite small as far as their staff uh, it might be two or three people sometimes it's just one person um, so imagine if every one of those 25 or even some of those 25 taxi members that were forwarded to that company were then given the information which we used to do they reach out to that owner and they say hey my name is roger franklin blakely and my cue instrumental cue with the banjo in it was forwarded to you by taxi about a month ago are you interested in signing it um, they have probably gotten several hundred pieces of music in that 30-day period they're not going to remember your cue. Um, so then they would have to go dig it out and listen to it again. And if they didn't choose to sign it, say, gee, I'm sorry, Roger, but I, I already have stuff that's kind of like that. Yes, I asked for, you know, whatever, Americana instrumentals. Um, and yours is clearly a very good Americana instrumental. But I have other Americana instrumentals that are very similar to the style within that genre that you chose to make yours in. So although the quality is there and the musicianship is there and the composition is great, everything about it is great, I just don't need it. And you're going to say, well, you know, I've got another one, or I could do a better version, or I could mix it differently, or was it because I didn't master it? And then a conversation ensues, and before you know it, this uh, music library owner has spent somewhere between 10 minutes and an hour going back and forth in emails or phone calls or what have you with you, and if you multiply that times multitudes of people, um, their entire day would be spent telling people, I haven't listened, I listened and I didn't take it, whatever the circumstance is. And where did they make their money? By licensing music, not by answering questions for people who would like to be in their catalog. I know it sounds harsh. I know that it doesn't make you feel any better. And I really feel for you. I really, really, really from the bottom of my heart do. I don't want any taxi member to feel frustrated or that emotional pain of just like going into this abyss and not knowing. If they want you, they will reach out to you. How soon will they reach out to you? Holy crap, God only knows, because I sure don't. 
um, we've had people that have gotten offers on deal, deal offers before we even notified the member. I just saw this online over the weekend uh, on the taxi forum, forums at taxi.com. Uh, and people have said that they've been contacted by a library before taxi even sent them the forward notice. That happens um, because we could, somebody in the staff could have done the, the batch of forwards to the library and then the notifications going out to the members might have taken place after a lunch hour. So there could be a little window where the forwards went to the company and let's say that that, that library owner was sitting at his or her computer and they were waiting uh, with bated breath because they needed something very specific for a show they were pitching to later that day. So they are in fact sitting there, you know, uh, I always say it's like waiting for your Coke deal or maybe a bad analogy, but they're waiting for the music. They want it because they've got something they've got to do with it as soon as they can possibly get their hands on it. Um, in other cases, they are kind of generically looking. Let's say that they know that the TV show Catfish uh, is going to start uh, doing post-production on episodes coming up um, in September for the, when the show comes back out in January. And so they're going to start, the libraries will start building up their stash of music that they are planning to submit to uh, the music supervisor editors on Catfish and they could run that listing with Taxi in April and we could deliver the music to them in May and they get it and they go awesome I'm glad Taxi came through for me now I'm gonna put it in a folder and put it on my desktop uh, and the folder is gonna say music for catfish 2019 and then a week before they want to start sending the music over to the people who make those decisions at Catfish that's when they're going to look at that folder and that's when they're going to start going through the stuff and that's when they're going to make the decision this is viable um, I don't have any of this particular style within a genre or this is better than stuff that I have maybe it's a little fresher um, and now you're going what does fresher mean fresher means it's not the same old stuff that um, it's just a little different not so different that you go huh what what was that but just a little different that maybe uh, instead of just pizzicato strings, maybe you took a guitar pick on piano strings and a grand piano and plucked those along with the pizzicato strings you'd get on a violin or something. So some ingenious little texture like that that makes your thing just a little cooler and just a little different, but not so wacky that they go, holy crap, I can't use that because it would draw so much attention because it's so novel and so wacky that it's going to distract from what the actors are saying on the screen. So there you go. That's uh, my sad report on why we can't connect you with them. They just don't have the time. Um, I, I wish I could make you feel better. I really do. But you know what? It's the nature of the business. And, and frankly, pre-saturation of the internet, we were able to connect people because they now you can just Google. You know, if we told you you were sent to XYZ library, you'd Google that library and you would probably pester that person. Um, and, and we do have members that will pester people. We have members that will say inappropriate stuff. Um, I'm going to retell the classic story um, that I've told so many times before. There was a big-time music supervisor that did major top-of-the-line Hollywood feature films all the time. And I think it was the first time she ran a listing with us, and we forwarded some stuff to her, 
And we back then used to say music supervisor, you know, let's call her Bonnie Turner, um, got your music. And this enterprising gentleman, and I'm using the word enterprising very loosely, uh, Googled Bonnie Turner and got a phone number. And guess what it was? It was Bonnie Turner's. I'm just making up her name, by the way. Don't Google Bonnie Turner because it'll be a dry well. Uh, he Googled Bonnie Turner's name and found Bonnie Turner's home phone number. And when did he call Bonnie Turner on her home phone number? Friday night, 10 p.m. And she answered the phone and he goes, Hi, my name is Bob Jones, and my song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, was forwarded to you by my good buddies over at Taxi. And I just want to know, are you going to put it in your movie? And she said, what the hell are you doing calling me at home on a Friday night? And uh, now I, I don't remember your song, so obviously I didn't choose it to go in the movie. And this person, the taxi member, started yelling at her. Yelling. Like, what the F? Why are, not, why are you not using my song? And, and she called me up and she reamed me out, man. She let me have it with both barrels, said, never again in my lifetime will I ever run another listing with your company. So that was the beginning of the end for us letting people know where their music got forwarded to. Um, you just have to trust us that when we tell you something is going somewhere, it really truly is going to that person. Um, it, I can tell you with a hundred percent absolute certainty that that has been the case and for every single listing this company has run for 27 years so just know it's getting to them um, if you haven't heard uh, I had a phone call with a taxi member recently about how long this gentleman has been forwarded like 400 times and has not gotten a deal uh, so when I looked at his history probably 150 200 of those forwards were drones and, and not to diminish their value in any way shape or form but I've got to tell you there are a million drones out there and so we were forwarding this gentleman who made very good drones on a very regular basis he was getting forwarded to the libraries but his drones he, he was getting forwarded in a genre that's heavily saturated and they don't need 200 drones, but that's how many we found that were really good. So that's how many we sent them. They probably found what they needed in the first five or 10 that they listened to. And once they find what they need, there's really not much impetus to keep listening further. Why would you wanna to listen to the you know next 190 drones when you've got 10 that are super good right off the bat? So, you know, and it's luck of the draw, by the way. Um, they're sent randomly. It's not like, um, you know, we pick, um, you know, that here's somebody we like, so we're putting them at the top of the list. Um, there may be times where we send stuff to a music supervisor where we've got a song that's an absolute standout that we think is dead nuts on it for what they're looking for that film. And yeah, we'd be crazy to bury that on the list, so we might put that in the pole position. Um, but it's just there are a million reasons well maybe I'm exaggerating there are probably a dozen reasons why your stuff can get forwarded and you don't hear and as I've said on the show many times we've had cases where people have heard seven years later I kid you not seven years mind-blowing okay um, this one's from Josie Day Hi, Michael. I have a question that's been bugging me. How can a song sound dated when no one has heard it before? 
Not sure I understand that part of this question. I've gotten some returns stating that my songs sound dated. Um, I just finished and released my album last October and was looking for somewhat of a throwback vibe for some songs, but still, it's, it's got a modern production. Artists like Bruno Mars and Megan Trainor do it and end up with a unique sound, end up with a unique sounds and huge hits, but my material sounds dated. Thank you. Honestly, without hearing your material, I don't know that I can give you a really thorough answer on this, but I can tell you that going back to what I said earlier, um, melodic structure, phrasing, chord progressions, um, drum sounds, reverb, the type of delay you use, the way you approach a vocal, all these things go into the stew that can make something sound dated. So I, I, I know older people, and I am older, so this is one of your older brothers talking to you here. People from my generation tend to make music that sounds like it was a hit when we were in our 20s and we were falling in love with music as teenagers or college students. So they get stuck in that rut. That's what, they, that, that's what they've been bombarded with. And that's what through osmosis that they absorb into their musical soul, into their psyche, into their brain. And that's what comes back out of them. So if you want to avoid sounding dated, you have to just inundate yourself with really, really super current music, and then you will have the opposite result, which is the stuff that's going to come out of you will sound fresh and current. Now, as far as current artists making stuff that sounds retro, I would bet you my car, maybe even my house, that if you listen to the stuff by Bruno Mars or Megan Trainor, their stuff probably has some retro aspects to it, but the underlying production still sounds current and cool. Um, but yeah, it may have an aspect or two, maybe a couple instrument sounds, maybe it's a vocal approach. It's got some aspects, some aspects that sound retro and throwback. Uh, and you know what? If you're Bruno Mars or Megan Trainor, you could come out with something that sounds horribly dated and people would still love it because they've already, you own a place in their heart as an artist when you're that big. So you can get away with murder, uh, you know, after you've had some hits and established yourself as a hit maker, um, people are more willing to listen to you taking a, a you know a diversion from your normal stuff and, and going into something that's retro or something that's just way out of line with what you normally do because they love you. Uh, if you're a new artist trying to break in, you don't have you haven't established that beachhead yet. Okay, moving on. This one is from a gentleman named Tony whose screen name is Weather Eye, probably in the chat room. Um, Number one, uh, consider a piece that's signed to an exclusive deal where the client gets 100% of the publisher's share and the composer keeps 100% of the writer's share. Does such a deal prohibit the composer from using any elements of the signed piece, like lyrics or melody, in another composition, arrangement, or mix and marketing it? Some folks have asked related questions here. So the answer is, can I take some aspects of something that I've got signed to an exclusive deal. Um, not really. You, you can't... 
these answers are like by degree. Um, if you had an instrumental cue, let's say that you had a reggae instrumental cue that was had a certain complement of instruments and was done on a one four five chord change. Let's say, um, could you create another one? Yes, um, but the minute that you cop the melody, even if it's let's say the first thing excuse me, it is done as a reggae cue with steel drums. And the next cue that you make, um, the guitar is the featured instrument, but it's playing the same melody. Yeah, you've plagiarized yourself. So if you've signed that to an exclusive deal, uh-uh, bad news, don't do that. Um, second question from Weather Eye is, any advice for optimizing MIDI-based drum tracks when it's not viable to hire a drummer? Um, I am not expert on that, but you have the greatest resource, I believe, in the world possibly at your fingertips, and that is the incredible community that surrounds you when you're a taxi member. Go on the forum and look for a collaborator that is amazing um, at programming drums and, and make them your collaborator on the project. <clears throat> that way you don't have to pay for it. Um, you'll probably end up giving them some ownership. Um, Excuse me, got to take a swig here, getting a dry throat. But you will accomplish the goal. And isn't it better to have half of something that has the possibility or probability of earning income rather than owning 100% of something that doesn't because your drums aren't cool enough? Um, so there you go. Hope that helps. Um, and the other thing to do is just sit down and learn it. You know, everybody who is a master at programming drums was not a master when they started. <clears throat> okay, this one is from Isaias uh, Becadano. Love Taxi. My question is, once you're signed and contracted with a music licensing company, is it possible that I'm submitting music on Taxi that goes to the same companies that I have a direct access to already. Um, I've noticed listening that have been, I've noticed listening that have been asking for the same type of, I think he meant listings. I've noticed listings that have this, been asking for the same type of music of these companies. I was wondering if many of those listings come from those same companies that one can be writing for already. Um, I wish I could solve this problem. We have long searched for the answer. We have listened to many, many taxi members that gave us ideas on how to solve this problem. Yes, potentially you are submitting music to the same library or libraries that you're already in. The odds of them looking for more of the same thing if they've been satisfied in what they've gotten from us already, they're probably not going to um, look for the same thing. If they've already found 10 cues in a certain genre, they're probably not going to go looking for 11, 12, 13, 14. So there's some comfort in that, um, knowing that they probably are not repeating the same listing. And I would say virtually every time that a company comes up with a dry well, if we forward them material and they don't like what they got from us or our members didn't submit enough stuff that got forwarded, um, the company may run the listing again, but we will always tell you that this is a repeater listing. We say, you know, that this company came up dry and they've asked us to repeat the listing. And we will actually give the listing number that it ran as previously so that you don't submit the same material to the same company for the same exact listing. 
So I hope that helps. Um, okay, this one's from Chris Matarato. Hi, Michael. It's all, is it always okay to use your own music in a portfolio capacity? I did read this question earlier. I'm not sure I entirely understand. For example, if a piece gets signed and you, as the composer, have it on your SoundCloud, YouTube, etc., is it okay to leave it up even after it gets signed, just as a sample of your work? Uh, my brother-in-law is an artist. I'm assuming you mean visual artist, like a painter, and his work is on his website, whether contracted or not. Um, he just can't sell it if it is. So I was curious how it works with us composers. The answer is different libraries feel differently about that. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I understand the need to want to keep that stuff up on your SoundCloud. The stuff that you have submitted that got forwarded that got you a deal is probably among your best work. So that's your best calling card and you want to put it out there where people can hear it and, and go, wow, this person really knows what they're doing. I think that many libraries are probably okay with that especially because now that they're the publisher on it if your music is somewhere that is paying some sort of streaming royalty and people are let's say you've got a youtube channel and you're keeping your stuff up on youtube and they're now the publisher they get to monetize those plays so again you've done their job for them it may be only pennies but you've done their job for them so they'd be crazy to say no um, there are other companies that once you're signed to an ex exclusive deal with them, they want it locked down. They don't want you to be doing anything with it. Um, so really the best thing you can do is ask the company you were forwarded to. Okay, 10th question. This is from Pete Frega or Frega, F-R-E-G-A. Thanks for giving us a new avenue for our creations. You're welcome. Um, question. Say I pitch a song and I get a few deals for non-exclusive libraries and then I'm offered a publishing deal in the same song a few years later. Uh, what would I do? Um, cancel my libraries? No. Uh, that's kind of like I'm married to my wife and years later I met somebody I'm more attractive to. <laughs> Should I cancel my marriage and date the second woman or marry her? Um, no, uh, you've got to honor those contracts. <clears throat> there are some libraries that obviously have, what's uh, the word I'm looking for, um, when something um, returns to you uh, at the end of a deal. Oh, um, yeah, it's the easy ones that I always blow. Uh, that's a little more technical than I want to go with. But yeah, there are libraries that will say, if we don't get you, if we don't get this piece of music used in a three-year period or five-year period, it reverts. A reversion clause. That's what I was looking for. Ariana came up with right to relinquish. You should go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, there are libraries that if they don't get your piece used in a certain period of time, that it can revert back to you. Um, this is especially true for instrumental cues. Um, I'm rereading the question, sorry. Uh, say I pitch a song, get a few deals for non-exclusive libraries. Uh, it, you know, some non-exclusive libraries would let you call up and, and after some period of time get your rights back, yes. 
most cases, no. You know why? It's a pain in the butt for them. If they've got a catalog of 2,000, 20,000, 200,000 pieces of music, if every time somebody in their catalog thought they had a better deal on the horizon somewhere else reached out to them, they're now having to do work in their extremely busy day where, remember, pitching is where they make their money, and they're taking time away from pitching to go in and take that song out of the catalog. Now, take it a step further. Let's say that they've circulated that catalog of theirs to a bunch of different music editors working on reality shows uh, or a bunch of uh, reality shows that, that want songs. In any case, the music is out there living in the bins and on the hard drives of these other entities. So now, do they have to reach out to 125 different editors or companies and say, oh, remember Bobby Smith's song, um, I Love You, Mary, that we sent you three and a half years ago? Can you take that out of your bin or off your hard drive? Uh-uh. So it's, it's clunky at best. So the answer is just create another piece of music. Uh, next question from Shaley Jade Gerbaz. Hey, Michael, I'd like to know what the industry perspective of female empowerment actually is. I can't speak for an entire industry. Um, there have been a lot of listings lately for female empowerment, and I've put a range of female empowerment themed songs in from being independent and free from expectations of men um, to celebrating body image and diversity all the way to not caring what others think and being impressed. You know, the very definition of female empowerment, I understand what you're saying and I respect it and I get it. I think you might be overthinking it. I think they're looking for broader general statements, like uh, I'm trying to think of a good one, but um, I'm gonna live my life. Um, I'm going out on the town with the girls. A lot of people in the advertising community actually think that that is a form of female empowerment. Um, I'm living the life I want. So broader, more general statements um, rather than a lyric, I am free from the expectations of men. Um, you might be able to get a little traction for that song at the next Women's March, but generally speaking, that's a little deeper and probably a little more complicated um, than the industry wants. So I think because of the Me Too movement and women's empowerment awareness in general, that people like stuff that touches on it, it it's more about capturing the spirit than delivering an essay on what female empowerment is. That's probably the best way for me to sum it up. Um, I mean, you've mentioned in here about you know women running the world and you believe God is a woman um, and explicitly state that you are female and you are confident, sexy, badass just because you are female. Do we need to have a level of arrogance and blatant obviousness in female empowerment tracks? Is that what they honestly want? No, I think I already covered it. They, they want general stuff that just says, captures the vibe of um, you're not barefoot and pregnant. Okay, there you go. Whether I, back for a second question. Question number 12. Thought of another question, he says. Are there any problems if a work submitted to Taxi is registered in my own ASCAP publishing company? No. Um, ultimately, 
um, you're going to transfer that publishing to the publisher that signs it. They're going to get the rights to the publishing that you look. Whether you have a publishing company or not, you already are the owner of those rights. So at some point, you have to convey those rights to the publisher. So it doesn't matter if you've got a publishing company or you're just an individual, you still have the rights and you need to convey them to that company. Woody Bradfield, back for another question. Um, do you have a good lasagna recipe? <laughs> um, frankly, I've got to say, in our household, my wife is the lasagna expert and she puts stuff in lasagna that other people would not dare. Somehow it always works out really well. I love to cook and I am probably a little more daring than my wife. I'm the kind of person who opens the fridge and goes, oh, look at that. We've got some celery hearts. We have some artichokes. Um, we have alligator sausage. Just kidding, we don't actually have that, but I have eaten it. Um, and I, I look at the stuff and go, okay, how can I make that into something? And I whip up a dinner that seems to always put a smile on my family's face. My wife is more of a traditionalist and she makes a damn fine lasagna. No, I don't have a recipe. Um, but I know that it takes really broad noodles, generally speaking, some form ricotta cheese, um, a red sauce. My wife would put eggplant in there. She would put, my wife loves to put squash in lasagna. Not a fan, really. It gets kind of squishy. Um, James William Haggerty asks, Hi, Michael. As a business person, I'm quite curious about the behind-the-scenes structure, revenue, and profit margin of Taxi as an organization. I'll tell you what, if I can see your tax return, you can see mine. Um, I understand this may be more information than you care to share, but you did ask us to ask anything, so here goes. Um, what entity do you use for Taxi, an S-Corp, C-Corp, LLC, sole practitioner? Do you have any business partners or co-owners of the business? If so, who are they? What roles do they play? How many people does Taxi employ? What's your annual revenue? Um, I said you could ask me anything. I didn't say I would answer it. This one I'm not going to answer. It's none of your business. But And I'm generally pretty open about this stuff. Um, not, you know, some of this stuff. But um, I'll, I'll answer what I can. Uh, we are an S-Corp. I used to have a business partner. I bought him out say 10 or 15 years ago. I still have a minor partner who holds about 3% of the stock. She's not active uh, in the day-to-day -day operation of the, the company, but she's an attorney and does give me advice from time to time. Um, we have a staff that generally ranges around eight, nine, 10 people. At some points back when we needed a lot of hands-on to open packages of CDs and cassettes every day, I believe our maximum staff was 13 people and believe it or not three of those people did nothing but open up packages and do database entry all day every day um, now obviously it's online and automated um, do companies pay us for your screening services no I didn't want to charge the companies when I wrote the business plan because I wanted them to feel I didn't want any obstacles in companies providing you guys with opportunities so I figured if I didn't charge them how could they say no pretty right about that. Um, let's see. How much are the discouragement fees? He means the $5 submission fees. And we do in-house call it discouragement fees. Um, go to the screener. And how much is pure profit? We don't pay the screeners on a per unit basis. My reason for 
not doing it that way is I didn't want to encourage screeners to try and get as many units or widgets, in this case songs, done in a given day because I wanted quality. We have a rule at Taxi and all screeners are aware of this. All we really expect from the screeners is break even. Um, we've never really looked at the submission fees as a profit center. Um, quality always comes first. We have some screeners that don't break even for us, but the quality of their work is so excellent that the members benefit by it. And I figure that we benefit, if the members are benefiting, we as a company benefit. So we have some screeners that some screeners in our history that have been horribly slow and frankly lost us thousands of dollars per year per screener. But I kept them on because the quality of their work was just so good that I loved the, the fact that our members benefited by that. Um, <laughs> if you had to start the company all over again from scratch, knowing what you know now, what one thing would you do differently, if any? Honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, I go back once a year, on January 2nd, every year, I've still got the original business plan that I wrote 28 years ago. It's sitting about 15 feet away from me as I'm talking to you. And it's 43 pages long, and I go look at it once a year just to remind myself of what our mission is here and um, to see if there's anything that I described in that business plan, which frankly is a little embarrassing to look at it now. In retrospect, I could write a much better one. Um, and there's really nothing I would change. Well, have you ever noticed that Taxi always makes incremental improvements? I'm a fan of the idea that I'd rather do 10 1% improvements um, than doing a 10% improvement or a 50% improvement because I'm not much of a risk taker and I know that most entrepreneurs are, but I take calculated risks and I just like bringing little improvements that add up over time. Um, a good example um, is online submissions. Um, it just made it a lot easier. People used to have to go to the post office with, you know, burn a CD or make a cassette, sorry, excuse me, cassette copy, stuff it in a padded envelope, staple it shut or tape it, whatever, go to the post office, put a label on it, stand in line, uh, deal with the person behind the counter, all that stuff. So um, doing online submissions, obviously, I know it, it's unbelievable that, you know, that this company ran without online submissions, but we did. Um, the road rally, we didn't offer the road rally when I first uh, rolled the company out. Um, it, it was something that we brought on like five years later. And, and frankly, I used to do a thing um, where I had 10 members in Dallas, 10 in Chicago, 10 in the New York, New Jersey area, and 10 in Los Angeles, and 10 in San Francisco. And I would go once a year, do a lap around the country, and go meet with these members, either at somebody's house, and we would spend like a whole Saturday together. We would order a bunch of food in, and we would just hang out and talk about taxi, kind of like we're doing here. Uh, and, and ideas would come from that. And so those little improvements that I got from the members during those sessions were a lot of what has made this company what it is today. And I've got the members to thank for that. Um, the road rally being one of those suggestions. So there's really nothing I would change. Other, If I really changed anything, it would be not working in the music industry. Because it's a re sometimes I do have one little regret. Sometimes I feel for the time I've invested that I wish I had done something 
that every household in America needed versus just musicians. But music is where my heart is, you know. It's what I learned how to do. I started in the industry at 19 years old, and here I am 45 years later. Wow. Um, it's what I know. It's people that I relate to, so it's the industry that I chose. But I wish I'd invented the laptop computer. Um, William Middleton asks, Hi, Michael. After retiring a couple of years back, I've decided to make, uh, make music my primary focus from now on. I'm just becoming familiar with technology. Uh, I'm learning to use a Tascam portable recording studio. I've decided to create an album for family, family archival purposes, hopefully. Interestingly enough, uh, or hopefully it'll be interesting enough that some non-family folks might enjoy it as well. Um, then use this as my introduction to other musicians in hopes that a song might catch their interest and establish artists who would like to record my songs. Any ideas on how to make this work? Could this fit into the taxi format somehow? I'm also planning to make a couple songs that read along children's books, hopefully creating community for live interaction with the public at book signings. Thanks. Honestly, William, I'm going to recommend that you don't join Taxi. Um, it's not really something that we can help you with. I certainly understand you know, you wanting to leave um, some music behind as a legacy, a calling card for um, future generations of your family, and that's cool. Um, the music that you create for that, just from 27 years of experience running this company, I can tell you with almost absolute certainty that it's not going to be stuff that is going to be commercially viable. It's probably, you might hear it or a family member might hear it and go, ooh, that would be really good in a movie. But music doesn't make it into a movie because that would be really good for a movie. It makes it into a movie because it's right for a particular scene. So the odds of you creating something that's a legacy piece uh, or something to burnish your legacy with uh, subsequent members or generations of your family, the odds of that thing lining up well with something that a, a um, producer needs for a movie or music supervisor is looking for for a film, really, really, really small. And I just wouldn't feel good taking your money uh, if I didn't think we could help you. So. And also with the children's books, uh, we are all frustrated here by the fact that we don't get more children's listings. We actually do outreach to children's um, labels and what have you. The market for children's music is largely driven by product and media. Um, if there's a movie about a dinosaur, um, they're going to hire a composer to write the score for that movie. And they're going to hire a composer that has composed music for big hit movies before because the producers want to know that their money is well invested and they've eliminated as much, much risk as they can. They're probably not going to hire um, an unknown composer. Same thing could be said for songs. Um, your song would have to be really right up the alley of a product um, or a particular film to get used. So it could happen. It's just there, the odds are not tremendous that it will happen. I would never say never, but I would also be honest with you and say probably not. So you know what? Pour your heart into this. Um, create something that you love, that you feel really good about, that puts a smile on your family members' faces and know that someday when you've returned to this earth as dust, that there will be a great-grandchild that listens to that and goes, wow, that was my great-grandpop that made that. That's pretty darn cool.
Marion Laird asks, hi, Michael and Bria. Bria's not here. Ariana is. Hi, Ariana. Hi. <laughs> um, question from Mary Band, which is her screen name uh, on the forum. Is there a typical way that music libraries respond when they're interested in something that Taxi has forwarded to them? Do most prefer to do it by phone or send an email or possibly even a text? Looking forward to today's episode. Well, hello, Marion, and looking forward to answering this question for you. Um, email is the predominant way that they would reach out to you. Um, and then once they would send to you an email saying, hey, Marion, we really like this piece that Taxi forwarded of yours to us. Um, probably an email exchange, but phone calls do happen from time to time. They just know that when they get on the phone with somebody that it's not going to be the most expedient way to have the information flow go back and forth. Okay. Sherry Lynn asks, what is the correct etiquette for pitching to subsequent opportunities when your song has been forwarded to an exclusive opportunity? How long do you wait to hear back before the client, from the client before you start pitching somewhere else? Don't wait. Um, any experienced taxi member would tell you, pitch that sucker everywhere. Exclusive, non-exclusive, it doesn't matter. I mean, just because something, I know in your mind, you, your vision of what has happened hits you right there in your forehead, and in your mind's eye, you see that piece of music magically flying through the air to that person on the other end waiting at their computer to hear your music, and you're just going, are they gonna take it? Are they gonna take it? Do they love it? Do they want it? Um, you know what? It could be seven hours, seven days, seven months, or seven years until you hear, and you will not offend anybody by pitching it elsewhere. The worst thing that could happen still ain't that bad. And that would be that you've pitched it elsewhere and somebody else says, I love it, I'm gonna sign it. And then the first company we forwarded it to also reaches out to you and says, I love it, I want it. And you have to say, gee, I'm so sorry, but another company beat you to the draw on it and they got it. You know what? That just makes you a little more appealing to that company that can't have your music because somebody else got it. And they're probably gonna say to you, can you create something else that's in that same ballpark? Now, obviously, you don't want to plagiarize your own song, especially if you signed it um, to an ex ex exclusive deal with a library. But you could certainly, you know, let's say it's a, a blues rock thing with distorted guitar, distorted bass, um, bam, bam, you know, that kind of thing. You can create another one of those. It could be the same chord progression. It could be the same instruments, but it better have a different melody and a different lyric. So there you go. Never ever wait to submit anything. Get it out there to as many entities. To a very large degree, this industry is a numbers game. Okay, this one is from Jackie Scully. Jackie, we might be related. I have relatives with the last name Scully. Uh, any suggestions for getting signed as a staff writer? Yes, um, be a writer-producer find a way to get yourself networked with people who are in a camp around an artist that's having hits. Really friggin' hard. Really, 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 really hard to do. But if you can accomplish that, if you can be part of a, a camp, um, a posse, if you will, uh, of you know half a dozen people that 
Um, usually the artist is involved, usually a producer or two are involved, two or three writers are involved, a lot of writers or writer-producers. Get yourself in that little cluster of people, that family of creative people. Um, you will then be desirable to a publisher who is willing to sign you to a staff writer deal and give you some sort of advance um, because they're betting on the fact that because you're part of that camp, and you're working with an established artist that your material will make money at some point and that's what they're investing in you so that they can make a return on their investment. There you go. Um, Paul Krieg asks, hey Michael, I sometimes don't know if a track I'm making is too busy or not busy enough. Uh, can you clarify what it means when a listing asks for ear candy, number one? Um, ear candy is typically just a simple little catchy figure. Um, maybe at the end of a phrase, maybe a do 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 do, you know, a, not a really good ear candy right there. But it, it's something that's just, um, it's leather seats in a car. It's an analog clock in the dashboard. It's just that little thing that just makes it a little cooler. And it could be a sonic thing. It doesn't even have to be a compositional thing. It could be that there's a drum hit at the end of a phrase that has like a cha long reverb. But it had um, Time of the Season uh, by the Zombies back in the late 60s, early 70s. Bum, bum, bum. That's a form of ear candy. Um, more often than not, it's something melodic or rhythmic. Um, edit points. Um, two schools of thought on edit points. Uh, you can a good editor, be it video editor, audio editor, can edit on just about anything that creates a spike, kind of a visual spike in a waveform. Um, if you're an old school editor like myself, you would rock quarter inch tape over the playhead and hear, and you look for a snare drum, a kick drum, a cymbal hit, of you know the attack of a guitar note. Anything that gives you kind of a hard edge that you can cut in front of, um, you don't cut in the middle of it, you cut right in front of it, that's an edit point. So anybody who's a decent editor can find an edit point in almost anything, unless it's like a legato violin piece, it'd be pretty hard to find an edit point. Um, certainly if there are drums involved, edit points all over the place. Some composers I know like to create edit points that actually have a rest. It could be an eighth note, quarter note rest in between sections of something. Um, editors, uh, being video editors who are slugging music into reality shows, love you. If um, Let's say you're doing a cue and it's a 90 second cue and you've got 32 bars um, of the same thing kind of repeating over and over but you know 16 bars in you add another instrument another 16 bars you add yet another instrument and then you drop it back down to the stripped down version or maybe go to a B section having a rest there some editors really like that I find it personally this is just personally um, I don't love when that happens excuse me because if you're um, it takes away from um, being able to hear the whole piece of music. You know, if the rest feels at all clunky or like it shouldn't be there, even though for technical reasons it makes it easier to edit, but it's not entirely musical, sometimes I believe it could hurt you. So two schools of thought and it's a matter of personal preference. Try it both ways. Um, be sure your track progresses with forward movement. Um, I personally prefer the word forward momentum. Anytime you see the word momentum in a listing, that's probably me doing an edit on the listing. And what that means is 
books, particularly novels, have a developmental arc. You know, they establish a premise, they establish the character development, then they further the story, and then they create some tension, and then there's usually release and resolution at the end. So that is a developmental arc for a book. The same thing is very true of a movie, the same thing is true um, of uh, film trailer music. Um, so you want to do the same thing when you create instrumental cues. You don't want to just lay there like a lox and repeat the same stuff over and over for 90 seconds. Give it a sense of it starts out as this, then it becomes a little more interesting, a little more interesting, and then we bring it back down, and then we make it more interesting, bigger, 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 and we're heading out to a crescendo that puts an exclamation point at the end. Ta-da, there you go. So it's just a, a sense that if you listen to the whole thing in its entirety for 90 seconds, it wouldn't bore you. It feels like it has momentum and is moving forward. That's a developmental arc. Um, so there you go, Paul. Hope that answered your question. Uh, Shane Borowski asks, Hi, Michael. I'm new to taxi. I struggle with mastering and would like to know, what's the best way to um, check your work to make sure it's production quality? Um, speaking of mastering in particular and maybe mixing, I don't know that this applies to production overall, but there is, there are several kinds of software out there where you can play your mix against a reference mix. So let's say that somebody has asked for blues rock, uh, and you can take a blues rock song that's been a hit and you can do an A-B switch back and forth with this software. You can look at the waveform. Um, it'll analyze how much bottom end you know uh, your thing has. Where is the bottom end? Is, is it centered around 100 hertz? Is it centered around 300 hertz? Um, is the vocal you know, EQ in the same range? It looks at all these different aspects, and I think that there are two or three of these that I've heard of. I can't remember the names of them. But go on our forum at forums.taxi.com and ask your fellow members. They will send you to the software. Um, the other thing is just listen. Greatest tool you have, your ears and your brain. So just listen to your stuff and go, my stuff still, still sounds kind of like a demo. Um, it, it doesn't have a lot of fidelity. Um, oh, look at that. My drums aren't as pronounced as they should be. Um, the vocal in my thing is way too out front. Um, all those things over time, you know, these aren't things you can learn in a day or a week. These are things that you learn over time. But the best way to learn them is by interacting with other people and collaborating. Become part of that forum at forums.taxi.com. Um, and, and ask questions. There are no stupid questions, and our forum is really friendly. It's not like other forums where people troll you and treat you like an idiot if you don't know, you know, the answer to something. They actually encourage you to be really open and, and don't worry about embarrassing yourself because you can't there. And you know what? You will learn because all of our, 100% of our successful members have all used the forum to further um, their knowledge base. And so many of them have said to me personally that this was way better. You know, I went to a four-year college for music, and what I've learned from the Road Rally, from Taxi TV, and from your forum has been far better than the education I spent $100,000 on. So there you go. That's how you learn these things. Um, 
David Recchioni or Recchioni asks, Michael, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I've been with Taxi since December of last year. Started great with my first submission being forwarded, but I'm zero for six since. LOL. How and when do you know if your music is good enough or if you should stop because it isn't? I know most of the submissions are a yes-no response. Actually, we call it a yes-no, but we give you some feedback. Um, I think for the most part, the limited feedback has been helpful. It's going to get better. We've been working behind the scenes um, to totally redo um, a huge portion of the back end that will directly um, interact with you guys, the back end of our database at, at taxi.com. Um, and one of the things we're doing is we've changed the format of the critiques. So you're going to get more feedback than you get now in an easier to digest method. And I think the screeners, we've actually run these critiques by the screeners. They all really like them and, and feel that they'll be able to give you better feedback at a pretty good clip. So everybody should come up a winner on that. Um, you know what? It's not a matter of your music really often being good enough or not. More often than not, I, just shooting from the hip here, 80% of the time that you don't get forwarded, it's probably because you really haven't nailed what the listing asked for, either broadly by not nailing the genre or more specifically, people just look at the first line of a listing and they go, oh, they need up-tempo EDM-influenced dance pop. I've got some of that. But they didn't read the part about it's got to have a bubbly attitude um, and it, it's, you know, female empowerment lyrics. Um, they leave the little details out. And they, I think people secretly know this isn't going to get forwarded, but I just want somebody to hear it. Or they submit it because they think that it's just so darn good that the screener's going to hear it and go, what the hell, I'm throwing caution to the wind. I really don't care what that music supervisor needs. And, and the screener doesn't, won't care either because they're going to hear this and they're going to think that I'm so talented and this piece of music is just so friggin' amazing that everybody's going to want it. They're going to change what they need for that movie based on the fact that my piece of music is just so amazing. Not going to happen. So zero for six, not that bad. Honestly, don't let it discourage you. It is a numbers game, and everybody who is a successful taxi member will tell you. They, some of them, you know, we're making six-figure incomes, and they go through dry spells now. Don't get discouraged. Please don't go home with your tail between your legs. Um, you know, and, and if you're prone to, and I don't mean this in any untoward or unkind way, if that's your instinct and you do that, you are not destined to be in this industry. The people who make really good incomes and are successful just stare down rejection and go, screw it. I'm just going to keep doing this because you know what? You don't come out of the gate wonderful. You don't pop out of your mommy's tummy being super talented. It's a developed, learned skill that keeps getting better over time. So every single one of our successful members, it's not that they were born geniuses, it's they worked hard and they worked long and now they've got this bag of tricks that they apply to everything they do and more often than not they come up a winner because they've accumulated that quiver of arrows. Each one of those arrows is a skill. Um, yeah, it's not a matter of your music being on a level or not. Uh, there are very few taxi members I've heard over the years where I'd say, this person sucks so badly, they probably shouldn't be a member. Um, Linda Cullum asks, hi Michael, Woo, we are a minute over. 
But I'm near, whoa, I've still got a lot to go. Okay, we're going to run a few minutes long. Um, Linda Cullum asks, uh, could there ever be an opportunity to resubmit after a return? And I'm going to shorten the question. Well, she wants to know, why don't, when you don't forward something, um, why don't you give us an opportunity to incorporate what the screener suggested and then resubmit it? The number one reason is the timeline, because the majority of the music that, or the listings that we run now are film and TV, and the timelines are usually pretty tight on those. Not to mention the fact that after we've gotten the submissions in, it still takes us, you know, anywhere from half a day to several days to screen the stuff, depending on the volume of, of submissions. Um, and then if we sent out a thing to you and said, hey, Linda, you know, this was pretty darn close, but if you could just change the attitude of that vocal. Now you've got to go re-record the vocal, maybe change a singer, maybe, you know, find somebody to remix it, who knows. It, it's a process. It's not something that's going to take place in an hour in most cases. Um, or you could be at work and not even get the email until you get home that night and we needed the stuff back in our hands that day. So it opens the door for all kinds of timeline train wrecks. The other thing is if, if the screener says to you the attitude of the vocal needs to be a little darker, uh, that might just be the one thing that the screener put down in the critique because it was the main thing. There might have been three or four other things that weren't working all that well, but the thing that jumped out the screener was the attitude and the vocal not being dark enough. So now the screener says not dark enough on the vocal, and you run out and you find yourself a, a way to re-record that vocal and make it darker and remix the thing and send it in, and it still doesn't get forwarded, you're going to call me up or send me a poison pen email that says, Lasco, dude, I did exactly what the screener said. I gave you a darker vocal, and they still didn't forward it. Well, maybe that's because there were other problems. So for those reasons some, and some other ones that I can't list off because of time right now, that's why we don't let people have the luxury. Um, it's, uh, the industry wouldn't allow it. Okay, it's not just us. It's not that we're being arbitrary. It's just the way the industry functions. It just wouldn't work well. Um, Wally Peterson asks, I wanted to join for over a year, but while my songs are good, I don't think my productions are good enough yet. Somebody who's a taxi member recently told me that as long as they're listenable and clear, i.e. demo quality, it's fine because most often the song will be re-recorded by studio musicians for the project anyway. Did I misunderstand the standards or did he misinform me or a little bit of both? Kind of a little bit of both. Um, probably 75, 80, 85% of the opportunities that we run are for film and TV, and they are not looking for demos that would go get re-recorded by studio musicians, especially in the case of episodic TV that runs on a weekly basis, and oftentimes they don't know what, they, what the type of music they need for next week's episode until a week before that episode is gonna air. So they're in an extreme time crunch, um, and they don't have the time to go re-record your stuff. That's why we use the term broadcast quality. Broadcast quality doesn't mean that it sounds like it was done in a 48-track digital studio in Hollywood, you know, with an A-list team of producers, but people are certainly capable of making some pretty spectacularly good-sounding stuff on a laptop now with nothing more than, you know, a two-octave, excuse me, a three-octave keyboard and some software. Um, if you're pitching stuff to record companies, especially songs that you're trying to get cut by major artists, 
Uh, it used to be that virtually anybody in the industry really didn't care so much about the demo quality. Um, I was a big proponent of repeating that over and over for many, many years, that it's the song, not the demo. Unfortunately, over the years, because pop production has gotten so good because everybody can do it at home on a laptop, that the, the expectation bar has been raised. So there are still some people, and we put this in the listings, there are some people that will say, all I need is a guitar vocal, all I need is a piano vocal. Even in those cases, it's got to be a really good sounding piano, a really good sounding guitar, a really good solid recording, and more than anything, it's got to be an exceptional vocal performance because that's the thing that's going to suck the listener in and make him or her, the, the artist on the other end, go, I want to put that on my record. So the best advice I can give you is, again, go to forums.taxi.com, be part of that community. Um, you will meet people who are looking for a songwriter. They've got the production chops. They've got the home studio. They've got everything you don't have, and you've got what they don't have, which is songwriting ability. Come together, make a marriage, make a hit. Frederick Reed asks, I'm wondering if there's any way the screening process could be more transparent. Certain screeners seem quite arbitrary in my humble opinion. Um, man, oh man. You know what? Here's how transparent we are. Uh, call me up, send an email to anybody on my staff. We will let you come to town and go through screener training and sit down in a screener booth under our roof and play screener for a shift. And... Uh, after about an hour, you'll want to rip the headphones off and go, holy crap, this is way harder than I thought it was. These guys aren't arbitrary at all. Are we 100% wonderful all the time? No. Are we 98% wonderful? Absolutely. Um, we've had many people over the years that have challenged us publicly and privately that go, your screeners don't know their butt from their elbow. Um, and I tell them, take the listing in its entirety, take the critique in its entirety, and take the song or instrumental piece in its entirety, and put it up on our forum and ask your fellow members. You can even go on there and say, I think this screener got it totally wrong. What do you people think? 98% of the time, the, your fellow members will side with the screener. The screeners are you. They're musicians. They love music. They want to see you guys succeed. I know it's easy to believe that um, they're sitting there rubbing their little hands together going, ha, 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 another musician whose heart I get to break today. I'm going to you know, beat them down. Couldn't be further from the truth. They literally get hired uh, in large part because of personality. Certainly they've got to have the chops. But we want to see that their personality tells us that they're going to have the right tone in how they communicate with you. So if they're telling you something's not working, they're basing it on years of experience in that particular genre in the real music industry. They're not here to make you feel good about yourself. They're not here to coddle you. They're giving it to you straight up. Um, and the benefit is that you're being given really good information. They're not arbitrary. That's not a word I would ever use with our screeners. But I do invite you and anybody else that would like to come and play screener for a day to you know, give us a heads up, come on over. And I relish the opportunity to have you do that. All right, I am going to have to get to the rest of these. Um, 
on another episode of Ask Michael Anything because some of my answers in the beginning were really, really long, and I'm sorry that I didn't get to the last um, six of these. You know what? I am going to take um, question 31 before I wrap this up. Uh, it comes from Eldon Detweiler, and the question is, most used best music file sharing format, format box, Dropbox, um, whatever. We use Disco. Uh, we started using Disco to send all of our music to the industry about, I want to say, nine months ago. We love it. We've tried many things over the years, and Disco is just awesome. We love the people that run that company. We love how easy the software and the interface are to use. Um, and It was easy for the staff to learn, and I can't say enough good stuff about it. So Disco, I believe it's disco.io. I think it's not disco.com because that would get you some of that. You know, you have to put on the white suit and the high uh, platform shoes. Um, so there's that recommendation. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I want to tell you that I will be back next week, and so will Ariana be joining me because Bria will still be out of town. Um, and next week, I forgot what the hell we're doing. Oh, um, loosely titled 10 Stupid Things Musicians Do to Themselves that hurt their career. So don't miss next week's episode. Also, don't forget about the um, taxi, what do they do with that thing? Uh, July 11th, the taxi um, showcase, which we will broadcast live from Kulak's Woodshed in North Hollywood. Please come down to the show, but get there early because it's limited seating and starts 7 p.m. July 11th. You'll also be able to watch it live on YouTube. With that, I bid you, ladies and gentlemen, a fond farewell. See you next week. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.